Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast, the show about all that's new and neat for clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. Today on the show, I chat with Michelle Anderson, who plays with the Vancouver Opera Orchestra, teaches at UBC, and is widely known as the founder of clarinetmentors.com. We discuss why you should share your teaching and creative ideas with the world online, how to deal with online criticism, methods for finding your niche as a creator, and selling your ideas, even if you have no experience in sales or don't even like the idea of selling at all. This is part one of a two-part conversation, and we'll focus more on Michelle's teaching concepts and methods in the next episode, so stay tuned. And yes, that pun is intentional. Be sure to check out Michelle's channel on YouTube, and don't forget to subscribe to Claire Neat's channel while you're there too, actually. I'll be doing an unboxing of a Bakun mystery box at 2,500 subscribers and giving it away at 10,000 subscribers. And trust me, you do not want to miss out on what's inside. Um, but while you're watching some of Michelle's videos too, you might notice that she offers some paid classes, and you can check these out at clarinetmentors.com or learnclarinetnow.com. And if you want to support the production of the podcast, you can actually do this through the link at clarinet.com mentors, or by clicking on the special offers tab on the website. Speaking of supporting the podcast, if you'd like to get access to an ad-free extended version of the show, you can check this out at clarinet.com slash subscribe. And thank you also to our sponsors for, of course, making the show possible as well. Encoda is a new app that lets you stream, practice, and perform tens of thousands of music scores. It's kind of like Netflix, but for music. Get a free trial today. Just search for Encoda on your device's app store. That's Encoda, N-K-O-D-A. Take your clarinet to the next level with a new mouthpiece, barrel, or bell from Bakun Musical Services. With free shipping to the United States and Canada, 14-day easy returns, and expert advice, you can be sure that you're making the best choice for your musical needs. After all, the best time to upgrade your clarinet was yesterday, but the second best time is today. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com and save 10% on your next accessory purchase. That's code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com. Imagine a reed that offers complex performance and sound, but is washable, recyclable, consistent, doesn't require moistening, and lasts for months instead of days. It's all possible with Leger Reeds, the world's leading synthetic reed brand, made right here in Canada. Leger Reeds are used exclusively by some of the world's greatest clarinetists, including Eddie Daniels, Corrado Giuffredi, David Schifrin, and many others. And now, it's your turn. Experience Leger Reeds at your local music store, or by heading to Leger.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. So I'm here today directly from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada with Michelle Anderson, who of course is the uh, founder of clarinetmentors.com and also a professional clarinetist in the Vancouver area. She plays in the Vancouver Opera Orchestra and also of course teaches at UBC. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you, Sean. I'm very excited to be here, finally. We've been meeting for a long time to, to touch base, I think since the beginning of this, when I started this podcast. I was so excited when you started a clarinet podcast because it had been vaguely on my to-do list, but I just didn't think I would be organized enough to do it. And I was so delighted when you started doing it and, and you're doing such a great job. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, I've been checking out your content for a long time too. When is it that you started with Clarinet Mentors? And maybe for those who aren't familiar, could we get kind of an introduction into the concept and, and who it's meant for and, and uh, how it's been going? Clarinet Mentors has evolved over the years, but... I think the early seeds for it was that as a, a teacher with many private students, I would sometimes have students who maybe would have a really good lesson and they would say, wow, I wish I had recorded that. You know, I'm afraid I'm going to go home and forget that one thing that really helped. And so I started writing down just the, the little moments that teaching moments that seemed to be really effective. I kept a little pad of paper in my teaching studio and I would just write point form. And then after the student left, 
I would elaborate on that, and I started making some YouTube videos. Here's how uh, you can make your high notes work better, whatever the topic was. And I started putting those up, and the power of YouTube, this was, I started doing it in 2012, and there weren't a lot of people putting clarinet videos up at that time. There's, there's many more now. So it, it quickly became accessed by people all over the world, and it shocked me. You know, I was getting emails from people in Finland and Syria and Australia and just all over the world. And many of these people had no clarinet teacher in their local community. That led me to thinking, you know, I'd love to share my ideas with, with people who need teachers. I mean, it's great if you have a good teacher where you are and, and can have one-on-one live lessons, but many people don't. And so with that in mind, I started creating a bunch of training resources. My YouTube channel, which is just YouTube slash clarinet mentors, has lots and lots of videos available. And then I've also started my own business of offering um, live online trainings and complete clarinet courses on a variety of topics to help people who want to study online. So some of them are uh, self-contained. They, they buy the course. They get a series of educational videos with worksheets, and they can ask me questions, but pretty well they're on their own program. And some of them are much more interactive. It's kind of like an online live masterclass with a group that meets regularly. Yeah, you know, I love the amount of things on offer, like you've got the videos and the courses and the live meetup. It's really incredible. And what I couldn't believe is you actually invited me to do one of these masterclasses with you one time. I think I came in and and talked about uh, just, you know, we just talked clarinet for about an hour and over 100 people tuned in from all over the world live. And um, so you've got a very dedicated following. It seems at this point, though, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've also managed to find a rather specific niche of adult players. Is that correct? People who uh, sign up for the live courses with me tend to be amateur adults who are either returning to the clarinet after a long break. So many people in that category, uh, maybe they've just retired, they have time and energy, or sometimes they're even beginners just at a later age. They decide, you know, I really want to play music. Maybe a friend of theirs talked them into coming out to their New Horizons band or something like that. So, you know, certainly... My videos are designed for anyone who's learning clarinet, but it really seems to resonate with the uh, mature amateur adult crowd. And do you think that that's something you kind of tried to look for, or did it sort of just happen that way? I just offered my teaching pointers, my philosophies. I think one of the reasons it may resonate with the adult crowd is I'm a real believer that if someone is a beginner, they should have in mind sophisticated concepts as soon as possible. And I think a lot of the beginner courses that I had encountered were, you know, step-by-step, but they didn't offer the big picture right away. And, And I would teach a child very differently from how I would teach an adult. But I think adults, you know, there's a myth out there that there are certain things you can only learn as a child. And, and I teach all ages and I think, that maybe one advantage very young people have is they can um, remember things a little bit more easily, certainly than I can. You know, anyone who has children will know this. <laughs> but, but there's a huge advantage adults have that I don't think gets recognized a lot, and that's that you can say to an adult, if you try this type of breathing exercise for the next six weeks, you're going to play your high notes so much more easily and so much more comfortably. 
And an adult can say, wow, yeah, that's worth it. And, and if they have a roadmap, they've already experienced all kinds of success in their life and whatever else they do, and they're used to following a plan. And so I find I can give adults at a very early age in their playing kind of a sophisticated roadmap, and they can follow it. And if I was teaching kids, I wouldn't be quite so philosophical and long-term. I would just say, oh, I want you to do this for the next week and hear some fun music, you know, and, and I would teach differently. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, that's that's totally true. And with kids too, one of my biggest pet peeves of teaching sometimes is that it's almost like we want to trick them into learning something when really the the way to teach is is not as required to be altered for young students as we think sometimes. And then again, though, clarinets may be different from like piano where people are starting at three or four. Or people are generally starting around 12 on the clarinet in Canada anyways. If I am teaching younger students, I'll, I'll be as mature as I think that person can handle. But I, I think it's a huge advantage adults have, and that's maybe why my teaching is resonating with that crowd. So I want to ask you about the very beginning, because I also remember YouTube back in the day. Like, I think I started my first channel back in 2008, and I was posting like recital videos, and I was really one of the first people doing that. And I remember, I've always told this story on here a few times, so my forgiveness if you've listened to this before, listeners, but... I had shared a link to my recital back in like 2008 on YouTube and it was on the clarinet bulletin board or something like that. And a bunch of people came on and were like, oh, that you shouldn't be doing this until you're ready as a player and blah, blah, blah. And kind of just being critical of the idea that someone would be sharing them, their playing before they're, quote, a professional. And it always sort of got me thinking like, well, should I be playing at all? Like, why did I even put on the recital? Like, I'm just allowing more people to see it through this online medium. But now things have definitely changed. Like a lot of people will post their kind of practicing videos and uh, people like Laura Clarnettis have maybe 30,000 followers on Instagram or more. I don't know where she's at these days, but there seems to be a real fascination with the process now that didn't used to be there. So I guess in long form, my question is, how was it starting out on YouTube versus how it's changed? And where do you think that's going? So for me the types of things I'm posting haven't changed a lot. I'm mostly just posting, you know, educational videos. But I will say that even for myself, I'm fairly confident in my teachings. I've been doing it a long time. Sometimes I'll be practicing and I'll get this idea and I'll be like, oh yeah, I just want to share that. And I'll throw on the video camera and I haven't done a lot of preparation and I'll just toss it out there and it's not the best sounding playing in the world and I'm aware of that if I was recording a CD my process would be very different I guess to share you how I've changed is I remember I have a video out there that's related to better tone and I was sharing this really valuable tool that people can use and do and someone wrote in the comments something like well just listen to her tone and uh, that tells me I wouldn't want anything to do with that process (laughs) and I sort of laughed and I my good mic out or something and I realized you know it's very easy on an online forum for people to be critical and I'm not sure that that's changed much there's always a certain percentage of comments that are critical and most of them I ignore that particular one what I what I wrote I think was something like you know there are so many models in the world of what good clarinet should sound like and if my model doesn't fit yours, I really hope you have, you know, someone you like, some good player. And I said, of course, there's many different styles. I said, I play a lot in professional orchestras, and they sort of like how I sound, but, you know, <laughs> everybody sounds different. And then I said, but this tool, I think whatever your model of sound is, that you can use this 
you know, this particular technique to help you get there. And in fairness to that particular poster, then he wrote, oh, my gosh, thank you for such an eloquent response. And he said, you know, I was perhaps quick to judge and thank you for, you know, handling it with grace. But, you know, sometimes I get really rude comments and I just ignore them. And I think here's what I'll say. I know you have such a variety of listeners on the Clarinate podcast. I know you have um, students who are, you know, heading for a career as a professional clarinetist. You have established professionals. I think YouTube and other social media is a wonderful way to share your message. And if people listening to this are shy, I really encourage them to do it. And there's a certain amount of of people out there who are going to slam you because it feels safe to criticize online. But by far, the majority of people I've encountered, and maybe this hasn't changed over the years, Sean, are supportive and they appreciate having content, whether it's you know, your recital and someone's working on that piece and they want to hear other models of how it sounds or somebody who's teaching or any contribution we have, um, I think sometimes we get hung up on not wanting to share it unless it's perfect. And I guess there is an evolution in the internet that in all fields, there are a lot more videos on here's the process, you know, whether it's here's how you change a washer in your sink to here's how you take care of clarinet reads that People are seeking knowledge and they're really appreciating it. And I think anyone listening who is a teacher of any kind, I think you should share your message with the world. I really do. Well, that's such great advice. You know, there's a a saying, um, if you think you can't do it, you're right. And I think that's really true with creating online content. And you can worry too much about the criticism. Like I was one of my questions here. So I guess you kind of answered it. But I was going to ask you how you deal with online criticism, because I've gotten not too much, but some like there were some people early on who who I think thought that this idea was a bit a bit silly in my local circles and they weren't too happy that I was doing it looking back I'm not really sure why but but other people online like one time I posted a video of me unboxing my my new Lumiere Bakun clarinet which it was like basically my dream instrument and I just did an unboxing video and talked about it and but one thing I said is that if you comment below I'm going to give away a t-shirt when this video gets to be 30 days old um and one guy commented keep your effing shirt. <laughs> and I was like, um, okay. Like, I'm not sure why me giving away a t-shirt is such a trigger point for you, but I mean, I mostly just feel bad for this guy. So <laughs> you can't focus on those people. I agree. We can't focus on it. And yet I'm sure you had a moment where you just felt horrified and shocked, you know, where's this coming from? And it happens, but you, we have to realize that for every hater, there are so many people who appreciate it. And, you know, I get emails from people who appreciate my stuff, but I know that there are many appreciators out there who I'm never going to meet. I'm never going to find out that they're liking it, but we are sharing stuff with the world and, and I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah. Many people will never comment or like, they'll just watch. Exactly. They're still there. And I think you've probably noticed this, Sean, when, when we take the time to try and share our ideas with the world, it helps us clarify our own ideas. Yes. And yeah. So it makes me a better here in person and and in so many ways, just that I've been becoming accustomed to sharing my ideas with the world. Well, that's one thing I love about conversation in general. And this podcast really helps for me anyways, even talking about like, you're totally right, clarinet concepts and things. And I've changed some of my mentalities towards certain things based on conversations here for sure. An example that comes to mind is like Cornel Volak, who I'm sure you know. I used to think that the clarinet I know it's a chromatic instrument, but that anyone should be able to play in all keys and that all keys 
you sh- should just be regarded as kind of equal. But he was talking to me about how the more sharps and flats you have on the clarinet, the nature of the instrument will reduce the resonance because you're not using like the basic stack open hold notes. And I, I thought about that and I was like, ah, so that's totally sensible and such a good reason. And now I would consider that in, you know, advising a composer, for example, how to how to select an instrument for the, the clarinet, like make sure you're picking based on the not just the capabilities of the player, but what's going to sound the most in tune and resonant, you know? It's so great. And those are ideas that we share because you're having these dialogues with all these interesting people in the clarinet world. Totally. Yeah. You know, people sometimes ask me about, you know, how I got YouTube going and how to get a following there. And and if you think that might be interesting for your listeners, I can just give some YouTube pointers. I think that, you know, content creation is on the mind of a lot of people these days, but they also are kind of nervous getting started. And, And things have changed because YouTube, for example, now, and this is amazing to me, but I thought I just had to hit a thousand subscribers to get monetization of my channel, which basically means you can collect ad revenue. But you also need 4,000 watch hours a year, which is like 10 hours a day. So if people aren't watching your videos 10 hours a day and you don't have a thousand subscribers, you can't even collect a penny of ad revenue. So for a lot of people, that's quite a while until they can build up that following. So is it something that you just kind of have to do as a passion project at the beginning? Or what was your starting out versus how you think it would be today, I guess? I guess part of it would be what your long-term intention is with your channel. And, and my intention shifted over time. You know, when I decided to start making online content as a business, then I'm approaching it still with the idea of wanting to share content with the world, but also then how I can relate that back to my business. But there are some things that make you more likely to get followers in YouTube and that changes slightly over time, but some of them are fairly basic, which is, you know, YouTube, at least I know about a year ago, was the second largest search engine in the world. So second to Google, more people will go to YouTube to look up, you know, facts and information than almost anything. And so if you want to share information, it's really important that the title of your video is very close to the exact words someone would use when they're searching for that topic on YouTube. You know, something like how to play clarinet high notes is just a great title for a video because that's the kind of thing people will search. Instead of like the altissimo range on clarinet, right? Right. They might not even know what the name altissimo is, you know, depending what stage it's there. And if they do know, you know, you'll still come up with it. Um, You've probably had that experience where you're typing in a search term on Google and Google will start to automatically offer suggestions like it's reading your mind, you know, and and thinks they know what you're So looking at those actually gives you a really good idea what other people have been searching. So if you're kind of wondering, well, what would be a topic in, in this area that I have expertise, you could just start typing in as if you were looking for your own expertise online and see what Google populates into your search engine, because that's what other people are looking for. And then you can create a video with that title and that will attract people who've never seen you before or never found you. And, you know, YouTube is pretty easy to use. You know, they have great tutorials on how to get started. They do have a section where you can put tags on it. And if you're not familiar with a tag, it's sort of like a keyword. So let's say I was doing a video on clarinet high notes in my keywords, I might have clarinet high notes. I might have altissimo there if it's a video that deals with it. 
I might have uh, clarinet fingerings. If I'm talking about reeds, I might put the word reed in. And those are other clues that YouTube will use when people are putting things in their search bar to attract them to your own video. YouTube loves it if your video gets lots of comments. And they will show videos that um, engage the community at a higher priority than videos that don't. So if you're just starting and you want to put up a video, honestly, get 10 of your friends to put some kind of comment on it the day you put it up. And if YouTube's engagement in the first 24 hours, they're going to love it. And so I think when I first heard that, I, I did ask some of my friends at first, but I always say on my own videos, hey, if you have any questions or comments about this, please, you know, fill them in in the comments box below and I'd be happy to answer your questions. And, you know, now I don't need to ask people in my life to do it because I say that in my videos and I have enough of a following. I think I have almost 25,000 subscribers that people will put comments in the first 24 hours. But at first, I asked for that and it really helps. And sometimes I'll even have a little pop-up saying, oh, enjoying this video, you know, hit thumbs up below. And so even if YouTube sees it's getting likes, that will make them more likely to recommend your video to somebody else. I mean, th those are small things. They help you to have your video be seen and spread. Well, you know, I've seen a similar thing. Do you know a guy, you, you may not, I mean, this is kind of a, you probably don't watch bass videos, but there's a guy named Davey504 and he does like just funny bass guitar videos. He's got like 5 million followers and he, I think, has, is creating some of the most interesting content right now and it's also hilarious um he sort of teaches the bass through comedy and um has a little persona to go with it and uh, he does this now you're watching his video and he'll, he'll just be like slap like if you're excited and i'm always like yeah <laughs> you know and and uh, it's funny because he teaches slap bass and slap like it's just part of what it is you know and and but it makes it kind of a game and i like how he does that he's not like begging for it it's kind of just part of the fun you know and that brings up a really important point, Sean. I think, I know for myself, and I, I think a lot of my colleagues would relate to this, you know, we don't want to seem like we're selling something or we don't want to seem like we're being demanding. So, you know, if you're asking someone to like your video, that might feel really contrived or artificial to you. And where I had a mind shift is someone who I really respect sort of said to me, well, do you honestly believe that the material you're sharing is beneficial to people. And I said, well, well, yeah, I do. And they said, so if you're not doing what it takes to have it reach more people, you're doing a disservice to all those people who can't find you right now. If that means you cheerfully say, hey, if this is helpful to you, I'd love to hear from you. You don't have to say, I need you to put a comment here so that YouTube likes my videos. You, you can just genuinely say, I'd love to hear from you and put your comments in and then take the time to pop into YouTube and answer those comments so that you're, you know, creating a sense of community. But I really want people to consider that if their own issues are making them feel shy or afraid of being criticized, they might be depriving important people in the world of their knowledge. And I kind of want to say, yeah, get over it, get your stuff out there because it will help people. You know, this reminds me exactly of a sales lesson I learned when I was younger working at an Apple type computer store. There was a guy who came in and bought pretty much a top end laptop. And I didn't want to push anything else on him because I felt like he was spending a lot of money. But he came back, I think, two days later. And he was really upset because he didn't realize that he could upgrade the RAM and I hadn't sold him the RAM upgrade and he needed it for his work. 
And I was like, well, I just, it was an extra $400. I didn't think you'd want to do that. And he's like, but I'm a professional video editor. And he needed that. So I had to sort of realize that sometimes selling is not about the price of something. It's about the value of something. And for some people, price, I don't want to say it's no object, but price and value are like inversely correlated. Like this guy, $400 for those extra 10 gigs or eight gigs of RAM or whatever it was, is going to save him hours of video work. He probably bills out at $70 an hour, you know, or more. So you have to really look at the, the customer. And so in this case too, like someone's looking for clarinet information on YouTube. If they can't find you, not only are they not going to be able to become your customer, but they're not going to be able to get the value out of what you're offering, which is maybe more of a loss to them and of course to you. Yes. It's a nice mind shift we have that we're offering value to people that to them is, is worth whatever it is, whether we're selling something. So when I'm selling a course, I really believe it's going to help them. But if I'm just giving away free content on YouTube, I also believe that for some people, it's going to make a difference. And therefore, if it's not the most professional video, if my hair is a little messy, whatever it is, I still put it out there because I think people are going to forgive messy hair if their reads work better that day. Yeah, yeah. Try to get that on a t-shirt. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. I've heard about this 90-10 rule before that's like, give away 90% of your content and keep 10% kind of behind a paywall. And that way, most people can get as much benefit as they want. And then your true fans will get in and, you know, kind of get the rest. Is that something you kind of subscribe to? Or what's your strategy for deciding what to monetize and what not to? I think it's a great question. And I've thought about that a lot. Because in the early days, early days, I mean, seven years ago, there were a lot of people who said, well, give away, you know, a little bit, but you know, you, you want to make sure you save all your best stuff for to sell. And I actually freely give away my most important teaching pointers for a couple reasons. One is I know there will be some people in a position who can't afford to invest in the training. And so they, they get that value. But also for the people who can invest in it, if they're getting things that's of good value and they like it, then they have a relationship with me. They trust me and they're more likely to invest. And a lot of my best content people could find by just rifling through YouTube and and getting a lot of great stuff. What they pay for is an elegant package that's structured in a system that's easier to follow. They don't have to randomly search through videos and there's worksheets to support it. So I think, I think in my paid courses, what people get is a, a much more organized structure. And in a lot of my courses have like a 30 day warm up thing that they do 10 minutes a day. And that takes some time for me to prepare. So, you know, probably you're right. 80, 90% of my best concepts are out there for free. But if people want the system to follow, that takes a little more time, then that's where they get it in my paid content. So the exception is I do have a live training online masterclass where people then actually do get to ask me questions live and they get to play for me. And that's, that's an exception to that rule because they're paying them for live time. Well, that's interesting. How many people tend to tune into those? You know, at any, I, I do twice a month. And as we're recording this, I have about 100 members from all over the world. And I try and pick one time, because I live in North America, my times usually work for everyone in North America. And then I'll do one that also works for Europe and the other one that will work for Australia and parts of Asia because I have a lot of Australians in the community. And so usually there's 25 to 30 people who tune in live, but many people then watch the recordings faithfully. 
and that's been really interesting because on a typical call, we'll have Sweden and South Africa and all over Canada and the U.S. and, and you know, Wales, and it feels like we're in a living room together. And because it's a regular group of people, they get to know each other and they'll hear someone who played three months ago how much they've improved in that time and they cheer each other on. So it, it's amazing the sense of community that we can create through a computer in, in that kind of structure. For anyone listening who wants to do some teaching, I've also recommended that people just offer a, maybe a mini group lesson. It could be you get four students who meet together for an hour every week online and you work with each of them individually for part of that time. Well, and watching others learn is one of the best ways to learn, I find. Um, I think more of that needs to happen. Yeah. So that's another idea for listeners out here who might want to reach people that can't come to them in person. It's better to have someone in person, but technology is pretty good. That I, I use a technology called Zoom, which is kind of like Skype, and the audio is quite good. I feel like I can offer a lot of value online, not as much as in person, but enough to really make it worthwhile for everyone involved. Well, I've heard too, I heard this strategy once for dealing with um, how to do lessons in low-income areas, because maybe to make ends meet, you have to charge $50 an hour, but no one can really pay that. So what you can do actually is either have students double up on the lesson and, you know, one watches the other and then you switch and you kind of have like both paying half the lesson tuition so you can still make the amount of money you need to. Or you can actually have group lessons even somewhere like online where, I mean, four people paying $15 for the lesson is actually more than what you'd be able to charge for just just one. And you can kind of spread the value and allow people to afford something they otherwise couldn't really afford. Absolutely. And you can do it from your own home. So there's no travel time involved. Exactly. So yeah, just thinking outside the, the box, I guess. Yeah, that's a great idea. So before we move on from YouTube, I wanted to ask, like, one of the things that I find about video that's so tough is sitting down and, and trying to just sort of record from start to finish. But I'm reading a book right now called How to Shoot Video That Doesn't Suck. <laughs> and one thing it was talking about was, was two types of editing. There's on-camera editing, and there's in-computer editing. And the on-camera editing is basically like planning your shot before you start and trying to save yourself computer editing. But if stuff happens on camera you need to fix, do you have any ways of going about it that might be helpful for people that, that are worried, for example, that they make a mistake and they've got to start their 15-minute video over again? Yeah, absolutely. So I do think that different people have different preferred shooting styles. I have friends who create online courses and they will script everything they're going to say and then have a video prompt. You know, there's software where you can have an iPad running script and they put that right under their camera so that they're looking at it. I'll just give you a few of my video pointers. One is it's incredibly hard to stare at a computer screen or a camera and feel like you're talking to a real person. So just background before I get into my editing techniques, one of the best pointers someone said to me is think about someone you've helped in person who really appreciates what you have to offer and really bring that person to mind. And when you're talking to the camera, make sure you're looking right at the camera as if you're making eye contact and talk to that person. And in my videos, I always say you, when you try this and if you do that, so that it feels to the listener or the watcher, like I'm speaking to them personally and I'm really trying to do that. So that's, one little pointer and to be a little bit more animated than you might be in person there's something about a little screen especially because many people watch on mobile devices that de-animates us 
So it's okay to be a little bit more animated than you normally would. It, it shows quite well. For me, I don't use a script, and maybe partly I've gotten more accustomed to it, but I'll definitely make mistakes. And here's a really great simple pointer. Whenever I make a mistake, and I'm going to do this right now, Sean, uh, I just made a mistake. I clap loudly three times, and I do it near my mic. And video editing these days is quite simple. So if you've never done it, most computers and phones come with built-in ones. But often it will show our sound file as a series of lines, and our louder moments will be higher. Those three claps I just did made three huge spikes on my audio line. And so I'll make that mistake, and the camera's running, and I'll, I'll say to myself, oh, boy, I really flubbed that sentence. I'm going to have to back up to where I am going to restart that sentence. And then I'll clap again three times, and I'll restart the sentence. And I'll know when I'm editing, I have two sets of three spikes, and everything that's between those three spikes, I'm just going to cut out. And then I might have to back up a teeny bit to the start of the sentence that I flub, but it makes my editing way simpler. I think that's such a great idea. And that's something I've got to start doing here because um, I've never really shared too much about the process with listeners. But I, of course, these interviews are edited slightly as well. I mean, they don't just all come out as perfect as you hear them, although it might seem like that. It's part of good editing. <laughs> um, but I love this clapping idea because one of the problems is I go through and I look at my audio clip and it's like, well, I have to listen to the whole thing to find what needs to be redone. And if I record this and edit it in two weeks and release it three weeks later, like I'm going to have a really tough time. But if there's little spikes in the audio that you can visually see, that's such a great idea. Yeah. So, and if you are interviewing someone, whether it's you, Sean, or, or somebody listening, you could just let them know up front, hey, if either of us makes a flub, just so you know, I'm going to make this noise and it's going to help me in the you know post-production. And that way it doesn't startle anybody, but it really makes our editing easier. Maybe I should just play a clarinet. Yeah. <laughs> Grab the clarinet and sound an open G or something. <laughs> you could do that. <laughs> Perfect. Anything that's going to spike your audio. I don't know. There's something elegant about the three spikes because sometimes someone will cough or you bang your mic and it makes one spike, but the three spikes is unlikely to happen by accident. People shouldn't let that, like, fears of editing throw them off. It's really much easier than one thinks. And when you're starting, you, you don't necessarily need separate mics. You could just turn your phone on and record. And, you know, if you start to do more things, then you can look at having separate audio tracks. I, I have a digital recorder that will record my clarinet playing and a different mic that records my voice. But I started with just hitting record on my computer. Yeah, and that's a good point, too. I mean, a lot of times people worry too much about getting started with something. And it's like we said at the beginning, you're afraid to sort of be in this beginner's mindset. You know, for example, with me learning how to do better video, I mean, I'm just reading a book and trying. I That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn as I go. And I think that's such an important thing. You don't have to become a degree holding videographer to start posting videos on YouTube. You just have to have something good to say, like your, your content reaches people. It affects people. It means something, whether or not your light is perfect and uh, whatever else needs to be the case, you know? I think you're right. And, and I will say that it gets easier and easier over time. Everybody I know who regularly records videos will look back at their first videos and laugh and sort of say, oh, I sure sucked back then. But you need to go through that. And, and I don't think I was hard on myself at the time, but now it's easier for me. I have more experience. And, and sometimes I can record a video straight through with no mistakes. And sometimes I have bad days. 
Well, same as playing, though. I mean, no one would want to share their playing from when they were 11 years old in the same way that they would be comfortable today, <laughs> you know? Everything improves with time. And uh, I feel the same way about, by the way, the first podcast, like the first 20 or 30 especially is just like, I've literally had nightmares about them. <laughs> if I had a time machine, I would record my 11-year-old self who did the clarinet and tuba duet of Country Roads at summer band camp. We all missed out. That was something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we didn't have cell phones back in the day. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, before we move on, I do want to talk more about your uh, your teaching methods and some of your um, techniques for how to improve various elements of playing in part two of the episode today. But I want to mention a couple things. Uh, the first one is that Clarinet listeners are going to get access to a special Clarinet Mentors trial, which you can access at clarinetmentors.com, which you can access, uh, here we go, which you can access at clarinet.com slash mentors. You'll be able to access some of the uh, specials that... Michelle has offered to our audience here. So, uh, Michelle, before we go, I want to ask you two quick things. And one was, did you ever imagine your career like this when you were a student? And the second one will be anything else you'd like to share about this topic with uh, the Clarinet audience before we, we wrap up for today? I think that when I first started studying clarinet seriously, I thought that I would just become a principal clarinet player in a major symphony orchestra and that it would be easy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously, it's not an easy process. And um, for myself, when I actually started studying very hard, I, I quit playing clarinet forever for a while because I just was putting a lot of pressure on myself. I didn't have the right mindset. And I went off and did some other ventures and then came back to it. I really loved playing music and it was a real mind shift to just play for the fun of it. And then I went back and did some further studies and I'm, I'm very fortunate that I do a fair bit of professional playing, which I love, but I don't really have a secure position in the major orchestra. I play with several groups here in Vancouver, but I'm mostly a freelance player. And I think that for me, I love teaching and carving out teaching. For me, it was never... I teach because I'm not making it as a player. I really enjoy teaching. And my shift to branch out onto online teaching has happened because for many years I've worked with people one-on-one, -on -one and I still do a bit of that. But I'm actually enjoying reaching more people. So my career has evolved partly through circumstances. And I think when I last looked, almost 2.5 million people have viewed the Clarinet Mentors YouTube channel. And to me, that feels... Uh, like a great way to spread clarinet joy throughout the world if there's such a thing. So my career is still evolved. Not sure what I'll be doing in another five or ten years. I love performing. I always want to be performing. It's not a priority for me to try and get a full-time orchestral job. I love playing, and I still want to keep playing, but I'm also enjoying the time I'm putting into other things. Well, we didn't really discuss this today as, as much, but um, I would definitely say you have what, what I've referred to many times on the podcast here is a portfolio career. Um, you know, you've assembled quite a combination of, you know, meaningful activities that are all contributing to your musical and financial and, and well-being in life, you know. And I, I think for most people embarking in a career in music, and I say this to my own university students, it's very important to gain some business skills, some life skills, so that you can create a really good chamber music series with a good audience in your community. And that means you need to learn some marketing and you need to network with the people who have the facilities and who have the audiences. And 
there's many skills we have to learn in order to do what we love to do. If we love performing, we have to create performance opportunities. And that was not taught to me when I went through school. And I know it's being taught more, but I think it needs to be taught even more. That's what I would do. It's funny the way you worded that, because I thought the same thing. Well, I'm getting a degree in clarinet performance. I'll be a principal player, right? That's how this works. Well, <laughs> not really. It's uh, it's an uphill battle that starts kind of when you graduate, you know? Yeah. And I'm really happy with the performing I do. I, I don't feel like I didn't reach my dreams. I'm shattered. I feel like I've actually been able to combine so many things that I love in one package that I, I wouldn't trade what I'm doing now for that older alternate life, although I probably would have been happy in that life too. Yeah, we should we should emphasize that you are playing professionally a fair bit, and um, you're not a full time player, but you like the Vancouver ensembles that you do play with are of the highest level and caliber, and so you do kind of get to a taste of what all these different elements of music are like. I just think the teaching is amazing that you're reaching so many people. I think that what you're providing is of such value that that uh, you know two and a half million views. Please don't don't leave us hanging. <laughs> <laughs> More to come, I hope. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up uh, before part two? Yeah, I'll just add, uh, you mentioned that there'll be some specials for any clarinet players who might want further training. And I will add that I would, any, any courses you may sign up through, through the Clarinet, that 50% of the proceeds will support the Clarinet podcast. And it should be supported because it's a great service to the clarinet world. So this is, uh, we talked about this actually in the last episode with Jason Heath about affiliate links and revenue and things like that. And that is uh, exactly what this kind of thing is. So yeah, super upfront about it. That's an awesome promotion. And thank you so much, Michelle, for extending that offer to our audience and to the Credit Podcast. So I look forward to talking to you in part two of this episode. We're going to focus on some playing and teaching tips that you can use, whether you're a beginner or a returning adult or someone who has a large studio that you want some extra ideas to help out your students. So Thanks so much again, Michelle, for coming on. Uh, where can we find you online? Uh, I know it's clarinetmentors.com. What's your YouTube channel address? YouTube channel address is youtube.com slash clarinetmentors. One other website I'll talk about is learnclarinetnow.com. That enrolls people in my community and my free newsletter, and they get notified of all my clarinet training. That's a great place to find clarinet mentors stuff. Thanks so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you'd like to send feedback or guest requests or anything else like that, you can do this at feedback at clarinet.com. And I do actually reply to every message that I receive, and I love hearing from people all over the world. Uh, don't forget to tune in again next time. We've got episode part two with Michelle Anderson. And also I've got some other great guests coming up. Cornell Volak returns. Um, we've got another episode with Stephen P. Brown on some music business stuff. And there's two episodes coming out with Angela Beeching, who is the author of a book called Beyond Talent, which is something that's been recommended by a lot of listeners and a lot of guests as well. So great book, super great to get the chance to talk with her. And uh, there's a lot of great other stuff coming as well. Don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, to go ahead and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice and also on YouTube. I'm uploading some new content on there and there will be the Bakun Mystery Box giveaway at 10,000 subscribers and I'll be unboxing it at 2,500 subscribers. Trust me, you don't want to miss what's in there. It's something really awesome. 
And before we wrap up, I just want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors. Of course, we've got Bakum Musical Services, and if you're shopping in Canada, you might be thrilled to learn that there's actually a Canadian dollar version of their website available now. All you have to do is head to bakunmusical.com and you'll automatically be directed to the right store. Um, if you're in the States, nothing changes. It'll pick up on that too, and you can keep shopping as normal. But no matter where you're shopping from, remember that you can get 10% off your next accessory purchase with code Clarinet at checkout. And yes, that does include the popular new Vocalese and Vocalese CG line of mouthpieces. So again, check that out at bakunmusical.com. We've also got Legere Reads sponsoring the show, and I love the fact that these companies are Canadian. I've been using Legere Reads as far back as I can remember, pretty much since, I think, grade 8 when they first came out. I was in marching band and found they were just perfect for the climate up here. It can be so dry, it can be so cold. And you know what? If you're looking for a dry, cold place to test Legere Reads, there probably is no better place than where I live. I was joking last week that it would be pretty cold out this weekend, and uh, it's actually been about minus 30, which has made this whole self-quarantining thing um, pretty easy because, you know, I wouldn't be going outside anyways. It's like literally minus 30 and there's been two or three blizzards over the last 48 hours it's been totally freezing cold up here but you know what the consistency of legere reeds means i don't have to worry about them drying out or warping or changing due to this crazy weather shift so that is something that i definitely love about the product so check them out at legere.com that's l-e-g-e-r-e.com and last but not least, of course, we have Encoda, which is kind of like a sheet music, Spotify or Netflix. And you can get a free trial for 30 days by searching for Encoda on the app store of your device. That's N-K-O-D-A or by checking them out at Encoda.com. N-K-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. And I look forward to seeing you next time for more of what's new and neat for clarinet with the neatest people in the industry.